50. Now, have you all noticed something different this week from previous weeks? I'm not all the way down front. That's right. So uh, part of uh, some of what happens behind the scene is different people have different talents and abilities. And uh, one of the people that we don't get to see much but has a talent and an ability when it comes to technology is Mark Dial. And um, Mark, I should have mentioned him earlier. You need to pray for Mark. He's got a number of health issues. And uh, I don't know that I would call him a shut-in, but he's not able to even get out of the house much. We just got louder there. <laughs> but uh, pray for him. Um, and even though he is limited and getting out, he is still serving the Lord. And uh, he's the one who came up with the solution for our technology problem. So we're thankful for that. So you should be in uh, Genesis chapter 50. And we just have this one chapter, this last chapter, chapter of the book of Genesis in our scripture reading in this book. So you follow along in your copy of God's word. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants who were physicians to embalm his father. So they embalmed Israel. They took 40 days to complete this for embalming takes that long. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Uh, when the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, if I have found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me take an oath saying, I'm about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father, then I will return. So Pharaoh said, go and bury your father in keeping with your oath. Then Joseph went to bury his father and all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him, along with all Joseph's family, his brothers and his father's family. Only their dependents, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with him. It was a very impressive procession. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, they lamented and wept loudly. And Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a solemn morning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It is across the Jordan. So Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as burial property from Ephron the Hittite. After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command, saying this to Joseph, Please forgive your brother's transgressions and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. I am in the place, am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's son to the third generation, and the sons of Manasseh, Manasseh's son, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis chapter 50. Now, with your Bible there in your lap, turn to Daniel chapter 11. The book of Daniel chapter 11. Here, too, we are coming to the end of the book of Daniel. Uh, we are in the final section of the book of Daniel. This final section includes chapters 10, 11, and 12. And you'll notice in your sermon handout, I have given you the entire outline of this section up to this point. Okay, So you have the whole thing there. You can review that. Uh, when you have time, maybe you've reviewed it already. Okay, one, of, one good reason to come to church just a little bit early, get into the sanctuary just a little bit early, is you got a chance to calm your heart, see what the passage is that we're looking at in the morning, read it, read the, look over the notes. You kind of orient yourself before we get into our study. Now, it's been two Sundays since we've been in the book of Daniel, so I think I'm going to have to just remind us of a few things here leading up to our passage. Um, just let me remind you about the book of Daniel. It can be divided. The entire book can be divided into two main sections, chapters 1 through 6 and chapter 7 through 12. In chapters 1 through 6, the focus of the message is on God and the Gentile nations, how God is going to use the Gentile nations. The focus of the second part of the book 
is upon the nation of Israel. What God is doing with the nation of Israel. And so in that first part of the book, we saw several passages that talked about Gentile kingdoms. In chapter 2 and chapter 7, we saw that the uh, empire of Babylon was a head of gold in chapter 2 and a lion in chapter 7. We saw that the Medo-Persian empire and Cyrus the Great was represented by the upper body of silver in chapter 2 and a winged leopard in chapter 7. We saw the Grecian Empire and Alexander the Great represented by a lower body of bronze in chapter 2. Well, I got my animals mixed up. Uh, Medo-Persia was the lopsided bear, and uh, Greece is the winged leopard. Okay, so uh, that's, that's my first mistake of this year. <laughs> And then after the Grecian Empire, we saw the Roman Empire. In chapter 2, the Roman Empire is represented by legs of iron. And in chapter 7, it's represented by this indescribable beast, this terrible beast. And finally, we saw a kind of revived Roman Empire that in chapter 2 was represented by feet and toes of clay. And in chapter 7, it is represented by a horn. And so uh, we have seen all these things. We know all these things, what God is doing with the Gentile kingdoms. And as we shift from the first half of the book to the latter half of the book, all of a sudden, the historic details of the prophecies that are included become much sharper. The, the details that are given in the prophecies of the second half of Daniel become much more detailed and exact. For example, in chapter 9, we saw God's uh, plan, his 490-year plan for the Jews and Jerusalem. We saw that Really, the focus or the central point of that plan involves the Messiah. In chapter 10, we saw how the Lord was preparing Daniel for this final prophetic message, the message that comes to Daniel through an angel. As we come to chapter 11, we were given a broad overview of the Medo-Persian Empire in verses 1 and 2. It covered the Persian Empire from Cyrus the Great to Xerxes I. And Xerxes I is the uh, Greek, he is the Greek king, or excuse me, the Persian king who stirs up the Greeks. He's the one who gets Alexander the Great riled up. In chapter, or chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, we see the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. And then in verses 5 through 35, we see great detail about the internal conflict within the Grecian Empire, eventually setting the stage for the fourth Gentile Empire and the coming of the Messiah. So in our passage 
here this morning, it really covers from about verse 5 all the way down to verse 35. We're just going to focus on verses 21 through 35. And, and what we have seen in these passages is this conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north is the king of Syria. And that kingdom's called the Seleucid kingdom. The kingdom of the south is the kingdom of Egypt. And that kingdom is called the kingdom of the Ptolemies. And so we see this back and forth, back and forth. In the first part of this section that talks about the king of the north and the king of the south, the king of the south is dominant. So verses 5 through 20, the king of the south is really dominant. But here this morning, from verse 21 through 35, we're going to see that the king of the north becomes dominant. So let's start with verse 20. Let's start with verse 20 as a way of slight review, and then we'll get into uh, the new verses that we have this morning. Notice what it says in verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So the one who shall arise here is talking about Seleucus the fourth Philopater. And what we know about him is that he imposed taxes, heavy taxes upon the Jews. That's on the glorious kingdom or the glory of the kingdom. And what Seleucus the fourth did is he appointed a man named uh, Heliodorus. Heliodorus was a tax collector for Seleucus, but he did more than just collect taxes. From the historical account that we find in 2 Maccabees, we understand that Heliodorus comes to Jerusalem, and he comes to the high priests, and he essentially says to the high priests, what kind of money do you have here? And the high priest says, well, you know, uh, you know, Ephraim and, and Jeremiah and, and uh, um, you know, this guy here and this guy here, they have their retirement here. They, this is where they hold their retirement. They've got funds here in the temple treasury for their retirement. And we have a benevolence fund here that people give to, and the temple manages all these funds for these people. And then we have the funds that people give to the temple for the care of the temple. So let me show you where we keep all this. And Heliodorus sees all this money. And as soon as he sees that money, he confiscates it by force. So he takes it. And this is the heavy taxes that Seleucus gives to the, or imposes upon the Jewish people. But it's not long after that happens. It's not long after that happens that Seleucus is killed. He dies. And so now we get into the verses that follow verse 20, describing to us what happens next. And so notice in verse 21, 
that a new king arrives on the scene. And this king we know is goes by the name Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So that's why the title of today's message is The Message Concerning Antiochus Epiphanes. We might have heard of him before in different times that we've studied the Bible. Antiochus actually shows up earlier. He shows up in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel, not by name, but by description. Now, here's something you need to know about Antiochus Epiphanes. That's not his given name. That's not his birth name. Okay? You know, my birth name is Daniel Sunday Handshoe. Okay, and there's nothing special about Sunday other than it was the name of a guy who very faithfully visited my great-grandparents' bar. Okay, <laughs> so his, his name was Bill Sunday. Not the Billy Sunday evangelist, but Bill Sunday was his name. And he was just a good guy to show up and support their bar. So that's where my Sunday comes from. It's nothing religious or special. It's a family connection, but that's my given name, right? That's the name my parents gave me. Now, here, I have a, a title. You know, when, when someone goes into ministry and they jump through all these hoops and meetings and conferences and stuff, there's a group of men who might meet, and they give their blessing to your ministry, and they confer upon you the title of reverend. So, some people might refer to me as Reverend Hanshue. Well, that's not my name. Reverend's not a name. It's a title. And we sort of have that here with Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus is a title. It's a royal name title. So this is Antiochus IV. You know, the king of England, what's his name? Charles the what? Third. Charles Third. right? That's his royal name. Antiochus is the royal name of this man. And the name Epiphanes is just a name he gave himself. It's a name that uh, he chose for himself, and it means the illustrious one. <laughs> so, so when you get to choose your own name, you get to choose the name that you want. The illustrious one. Now, that'll become important later. But look at verse 21 with me, and we'll learn about Antiochus Epiphanes here. In verse 21, it says, And his, and this is talking about Seleucus IV, in his place shall arise a vile person. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. To whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So at the death of Seleucus IV, the throne would rightly belong to his son Demetrius. But instead of Demetrius coming to the throne, Antiochus Epiphanes comes to the throne, and he's described here as a vile person, a contemptuous person, someone who is despised. And the Jews are the ones who despised him. And we learn a little bit of the Jews' relationship with Antiochus Epiphanes because they gave him a nickname. Antiochus Epiphanes, of course his name means Antiochus, the illustrious one. The Jews did not call him Epiphanes, they called him Epimenes, 
Epimenes. And that means Antiochus, the crazy one, or the madman. So you can see that they did not revere Antiochus. They reviled Antiochus. And we also know that Antiochus was not... Um, while he was related to the royal family, he was not in the royal line of succession. So you see in our verse it says, whom they will not give the honor of royalty. He was not in the line to be king. However, through secrecy, covert action, and subtlety, he comes to the throne. Demetrius, the rightful king, is in Rome. He's hostage in Rome, and he can't take the throne. He can't secure the throne. And so Antiochus Epiphanes does some backroom deals, political maneuvering, and he secures the throne for himself. And this transition of power was peaceful. We see that. It says, he shall come in peaceably and seized the kingdom by intrigue. It was not a coup d'etat. He did not take it by force. And as soon as Antiochus comes to the throne, in verse 22, we are told he deals with two of his main enemies. Two of his main enemies, verse 22. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince or the ruler of the covenant. So enemy number one, enemy number one is the they there in the first part of the verse. It says with the force of a flood, they, that's the first enemy. And this is, this enemy is the army of Ptolemy the sixth. Ptolemy the sixth, king of the south, king of Egypt. And so in 169 BC, Ptolemy invades Israel and Phoenicia, and he attempts to take back territory that he lost to Syria. But he is utterly and totally defeated, and in fact, Ptolemy is taken as political hostage by Antiochus Epiphanes. He's hostage in Syria. That's the first enemy. That's the first enemy that Antiochus Epiphanes defeats. The second enemy is the prince or the ruler of the covenant. Now this is talking about the covenant people of God. And the covenant people of God are the Jews. It is the nation of Israel. And the ruler of the Jews at this time was the high priest. And the high priest's name is Onias III. And Antiochus deposes him. He removes him from the office of high priest. And so he conquers Egypt and he conquers the Jews as soon as he becomes king of the north. And notice in verse 23, as a result of him conquering the king of the south, Ptolemy, he goes and makes an agreement with Ptolemy. Look what it says. And after a league, so it's like a treaty or an agreement. After a league is made with him, with Ptolemy, he shall act deceitfully 
For he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So the, the him and the he here refers to Ptolemy VI, the one that Antiochus took as political prisoner. And what happens here is while Ptolemy is in political prison in Syria, Antiochus comes to him and says, we need to make a deal. We need to have an agreement here. Let me propose something. I am going to let you go home. Let you go home and take your throne back. But when you go home, you have to be my ally. You have to look out for my interest in your land. And of course, what does Ptolemy do? He says, sure thing. Anything to get me home, I'll go home. And so he goes home and he takes over his throne again. But instead of honoring his agreement with Antiochus Epiphanes, he and his brother go against Antiochus. They resist Antiochus, and they actually take back some territory from Antiochus. And because of that, because of this agreement that is broken in verse 23, we see in verse 24 that Antiochus retaliates. Look at verse 24. He, that's Antiochus there, he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province and he shall do what his fathers have not done nor his forefathers. Now what is that? He shall disperse among them, among the population of this province, the plunder spoil and riches and he shall devise his plan against the strongholds but only for a time so what happens here is Antiochus he doesn't really go down and invade Egypt he goes down through Israel into the eastern part of Egypt just as a show of force and if you can think of it this way um, Syria is way up here and Egypt is way down here and in between them is disputed territory. It's like North Korea and South Korea. What's between them? The demilitarized zone. It's disputed area. And so Antiochus comes down with his army and he starts taking control and having influence over these disputed areas, even into Egypt. And how did he win the favor of the population? He gave them the spoils of war. He, all the plunder that he took from the Ptolemies, he didn't take home with him. He gave them to the population. Now, this was not an act of kindness. Antiochus wasn't turning over a new leaf and saying, I'm giving back to the people. No, this was a calculated strategy. He was making sure that the next time Egypt and Syria went to war together, the population in this area would be on Syria's side, would be on his side. And he was successful. He was successful. Look at verses 25 through 27, because here we see that Antiochus does invade Egypt and defeats them. Verse 25. He, that is Antiochus, shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, that's Ptolemy, with a great army. And the king of the south shall stir up to battle with a very great and mighty army. 
and he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat the portion of his, Ptolemy's, delicacies shall destroy him. His army, the army of the king of the south, shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Verse 27. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. So these verses... Verse 25 through 27, take us back to the year 169 B.C. And Antiochus invades Egypt with his army. But the Egyptians are able to put together a bigger and a mightier army. But even though they have a numerical advantage over the Syrians, Antiochus is still able to defeat him. We see that in verse 25. When you come to the last phrase of verse 25, down into verse 26, where it talks about plans being devised against Ptolemy, and that people who eat at his table, his delicacies, turn against him. This is the result of Antiochus sharing the plunder with the population in verse 24. Antiochus, because of this strategy of essentially buying people off, he is able to turn some of the officials of Ptolemy, some of the officials of Egypt against their king. And so he's able to defeat him. Ptolemy, or excuse me, Antiochus is able to defeat the Egyptians. Now, verse 27 gives us a Really important insight to both of these guys. Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy VI both wanted peace, except they wanted peace on their terms. It wasn't an unconditional peace. It was a conditional peace. I want peace as long as I get an advantage. As long as I'm in control, I want peace. Both of these men said that. But the problem is, this verse tells us that both of them are bent on evil and they will sit down at the same table with each other and lie back and forth. They just tell lies to one another. There is going to be no peace. Even though they're involved in all of this political maneuvering and deception making treaties and breaking treaties. There will be no peace. But you know what will be? You know what will happen? Look at the end of verse 27. For the end will still be at the appointed time. This is in reference to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. You remember, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, we have God's 490-year plan for the Jews in Jerusalem. And in verse 25, we're given information about phase one of that plan. We're told when it starts, and we're told when it ends. And this is going to happen according to God's plan. The time between the start of phase one and the end of phase one is 400 and 83 years. 
And what this verse is telling us, verse 27 is telling us, is that men can be involved in all their political maneuvering, all their attempts to gain power and control in the world, but God is still going to accomplish his plan. He has set a time when the Messiah will come. He has set a time when the Messiah will be presented. And these men, Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy VI, cannot disrupt God's timetable. They can't disrupt it. They can be part of it, but they can't disrupt it. And so we see here that there's not going to be any peace because the appointed time is still to come. And before the appointed time can come, something's got to happen. There has to be another Gentile kingdom come on the scene. Because when Christ comes to the earth, what kingdom rules the world? Rome. So Rome has to come on the scene. And so really what we're going to see from verse 28 to verse, 20, uh, verse 35 is how Rome comes on the scene. So let's look at verse 28 together, because verse 28 is going to tell us how Antiochus now is going to focus on the Jewish people. He's going to oppress them, and he's going to plunder the temple. Look at verse 28. It says, while returning to his land, this is talking about Antiochus, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. That's another way to say the Jews, the people of the covenant. So he shall do damage, damage to the Holy Covenant, damage to the Jews, and shall return to his own land. Now, I'll just point out to you, this is really what Daniel's concerned about. Remember, at the whole start of this section, Daniel's praying. Remember that all the way back in chapter 10, several weeks ago. Daniel's praying. Why is he praying? He's concerned about what God's plan for the Jews means for them, especially in light of the desolations that are predicted. Daniel wants to know, what are the desolations? What are the Jews going to have to go through? And now we see in this verse the beginning of that information. So this is really where Daniel's concern is at. Daniel is not concerned by two kingdoms who I'm sure he views as second-rate powers. I mean, the kingdom of Syria and the kingdom of Egypt at this time cannot compare to Babylon and Persia, kingdoms that Daniel served in. These are, these are second-rate kingdoms compared to them. Daniel's not worried about their fighting and their battling against each other. He's concerned about how all of this is going to affect the Jews and Jerusalem. And so when Antiochus, who has been down in Egypt, when he comes home, on his way home to go from Egypt to Syria, what country do you have to go through? Israel. You have to go through Israel. On his way through Israel, he finds an insurrection. There's a rebellion taking place in Israel against him, and he crushes that rebellion immediately. History tells us that he massacred about 80,000 men, women, 
and children. And so he's persecuting the Jews at this time. And as we move to verses 29 and 30, we see more about Antiochus's life and what he does next. So keep in mind, the picture that we have here is Antiochus has invaded Egypt and he has defeated them. On his way home, he finds out that in Israel, there's an insurrection. And so he puts down the insurrection and he begins to persecute the Jews. Then he goes home. Then he's home for a short amount of time and then he's going to return to Egypt to fight them again. So look at verse 29 now. It says, at the appointed time. Did you get that? At the appointed time. So in the book of Daniel, who appoints times? God. So at the appointed time, he, Antiochus, shall return and go towards the south. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. It, it, in other words, it, it won't be like it's ever been before. This is going to be a unique thing. Verse 30. For the ships of Cyprus, or maybe your Bible says Katim, shall come up against him, therefore he shall be grieved. Stop right there. So in verse 29, we're told that Antiochus is going to invade Egypt at the appointed time, the time that God has appointed. Remember, we're talking about a, a plan that God has made, and he set the timetable on that plan. That's Daniel chapter 9. And so uh, Antiochus is going to go back down to Egypt, and he's going to invade them again, except this time he's defeated. He hasn't been defeated by Egypt before. This time he will be defeated. And verse 30 tells us why. The reason that Antiochus is defeated is that there is a new party that comes. And it says ships from Cyprus, literally Katim. Now that term Katim came to be used of the Mediterranean world. Except here it's referring to an up-and-coming empire on the other side of the Mediterranean from Egypt. That is the Roman Empire. So that's the fourth Gentile Empire that Daniel has already had revealed to him. They're being introduced right here at this point. So here's the picture. Antiochus goes down to fight the king of the south, the Egyptians, and when he gets there, he is met by a Roman general. And uh, let me just read to you what a historian says about this. So, quote, As the Syrians, that's Antiochus, were moving to besiege Alexandria, city of Egypt, the Roman commander Gaius Poplius Lamus met Antiochus four miles outside of the city and handed him a letter from the Roman Senate ordering him to leave Egypt or face war with Rome. Then the Roman commander drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and told him that he must respond before stepping from the circle. Well aware of the might of Rome, having been hostage there and also remembering his father's defeat by the Roman legions at the Battle of Magnesia, the Syrian king, Antiochus, 
stood in humiliated silence for a brief interval and then acquiesced to the demand. Antiochus withdrew from Egypt to Antioch in utter humiliation, end quote. So that is what happened. That's what these verses are recording for us. The defeat of Antiochus and the rise of the fourth Gentile kingdom, the kingdom or the empire of Rome. But notice what happens next. Antiochus is going to leave Egypt and he's going to head home and we see what happens next in verses 30 through 31. Look there in the middle of verse 30. It says, therefore he shall be grieved and, and now notice carefully, and return, return home in rage against the Holy Covenant, against Israel, against the covenant people, and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant, and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, the citadel, then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So in verses 30 and 31, we see that Antiochus ramps up his persecution of the Jews. In 167 BC, Antiochus sends a man named Apollonius to Jerusalem. Apollonius was to Antiochus what Heinrich, what Heinrich, uh, uh, excuse me, Reinhard Heydrich was to Hitler. Okay, the guys who would do the unspeakable things, the guys who would do the dirty work who had no problem killing thousands and thousands of people. That's Apollonius. That's really his role. He comes to Jerusalem, and he comes, and he's got his white flag of truce, we'll say. I'm kind of embellishing here a little bit, but he comes in peace. And when he comes in peace, it's on the Sabbath. And as soon as he knows the Jews see him as a peaceful envoy from Antiochus, he attacks. He, he springs his trap and he attacks Jerusalem on the Sabbath, killing many and plundering the city. And we see in verse 31, excuse me, at the end of verse 30 where it says, and so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. That's talking about Jews who have decided to follow Antiochus instead of following God. So he treats these traitors, these Jewish traitors, with favor. Then that same year, but a little bit later, is when he comes in and he defiles the temple, setting up the abomination of desolation. And that abomination of desolation happened on December 16th, 167 B.C., and it was the idol or altar of Zeus, the god Zeus, the god Jupiter, that was set up in the temple. Connected to that, the Syrians would have... Uh, slaughtered a pig on the altar, defiling the altar and rendering it unusable to the Jews. 
And so Antiochus steps up his persecution of the Jews, even shutting down all worship at the temple. And the verse 32, in verse 32, we see that Antiochus doesn't get away with this. There's an opposition. The Maccabees, maybe you've heard of them before. The Maccabees are going to oppose him. Look at verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. Again, talking about treasonous Jews. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. These are the people who follow God. These are the ones who are faithful Jews. They're going to do great exploits. They are going to wage a guerrilla war against the Syrians and Antiochus. And verse 33 tells us, as a part of this opposition, as part of this revolt by the faithful Jews, there is going to be a religious revival, verse 33. And those of the people who understand, that's talking about faithful Jews, those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Many people are going to say, we need to side with the rebellion. We need to side with the faithful Jews. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame and by captivity and plunder. So many people are going to be turning to the rebellion against Antiochus. They're going to be returning to this, to this faithful group of Jews. Their numbers are going to increase, but they're going to be killed. They're going to be killed because of their faithfulness to God, and they're going to be taken captive, and they're going to lose everything they have. Everything. We also find that even though there is a religious revival in the land, verse 34 tells us this revival does not remain pure. Look what it says. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. So when the faithful fall, when these faithful Jews fall, when they are killed, they're going to be aided. Some aid is going to come to this faithful rebellion. But many of the people who come are going to come for the wrong reasons. They're going to come for the intrigue. In other words, this is telling us that there will be Jews who join the rebellion because, hey, you look at both sides, it looks like the rebels are winning. Let's go with the winning side. And that also tells us when the fortunes of war change, they're going to go back to Antiochus. So these people are not true believers. The ones who join by intrigue are not true believers. They're just playing the odds. And in verse 35, we see that these people, these people are purged. These uh, unfaithful Jews who joined the rebellion, they'll be purged. Look at verse 35. And some of those of understanding shall fall. So some of the faithful will fall. Talking about this rebellion. To refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. This is talking about the persecution of the faithful Jews is once again going to become so great that those who aren't really committed to the cause, they're going to drop out of the rebellion. They're no longer going to stand against Antiochus. But notice the words of hope at the very end. Until the time of the end. 
because it is still for the appointed time. God has still set a time that he is accomplishing his plan. He's still got a timetable, and all of this fits into his timetable. Antiochus is not going to persecute the Jews forever. In chapter 8, verse 14, it tells us he's only going to do it for 2,300 days. Six years and four months. And what you find when you look at history is from the time when Antiochus really starts to persecute the Jews until his death, about six years and four months. So this persecution of the Jews by Antiochus is going to end at his death. Do you know what the Jews do when he dies? They cleanse the temple and they throw a big party. Do you know what that party's called? Hanukkah. They celebrate it today. They're celebrating not just the cleansing of the temple, but they're also celebrating the death of Antiochus. The feast of Hanukkah. So when we read passages like this, there's a lot of information here, huh? There's a lot of historic detail here. But we need to remember that when God gave this information, it wasn't history. All of this is prophecy. God said all of this will happen hundreds of years before it happened. And when we look at history, do you know what we find? We find things happened exactly as God said that they would happen. Exactly. Now put your place in the sandals of Daniel. He's an old guy. This is about 537 B.C. And he's given all this information, all this prophecy about what's going to happen. Now, why would Daniel believe God? I mean, this is incredible stuff. You're t Daniel is being told about, well, this king is going to attack this king. And then this king's going to come back and attack this king, but he's not going to win, but he's going to do this, and he's going to do this political maneuver, and he's going to do this and that, and they're going to sit at the same table, and they're going to tell each other lies. And all this is going to happen at this time. And oh, by the way, there's this other group of people that come from across the Mediterranean Sea who are going to show up, and they're going to becoming, they'll become dominant. Hundreds of years. Daniel doesn't even know that Greece is a rising power. He doesn't see that yet. Why would Daniel believe God? Let me give you two reasons real quick. Why Daniel would believe God and why we should believe God. Number one, God has never lied. He has never lied. When God says something will happen, it will happen just as he says. When God says, I will do this, when God says, this is the timetable, this is the 483 years in which this will happen, it will happen exactly as God says. Secondly, a second reason that Daniel would believe God 
is because Daniel has not only heard of God's faithfulness, he's experienced God's faithfulness. Who delivered Daniel from the den of lions? God. When Daniel was sitting there and Belshazzar was holding his feast and the writing on the wall. And Daniel says, this is the end of your life and the end of the Babylonian kingdom. And the next king that comes in is who? Cyrus the Great. Daniel would have known what Isaiah wrote. In our Bibles, it's in Isaiah 45. Daniel would have known this is Cyrus, who God predicted 160 years ago would come and be the one to restore Jerusalem and the temple. He's the one 160 years before. Daniel experienced God's faithfulness in his own life and his own eyes. And we can see the same thing. God does not lie. God is faithful, and he is faithful to us. We must take prophecy and history together. When we see the prophecy of the Bible that is fulfilled in history, we see it fulfilled exactly like God said. You know, there's some people who want to say, well, this historic event and this prophetic event go together. And when you compare them, they don't exactly match. They don't exactly match. And when they don't match exactly, that tells us these are not the same thing. Not the same thing. They're different things. Because when God fulfills his word, he fulfills it exactly the way that he said. You know, when it comes to prophecy and history and putting these two together like we must when we read a passage like this we can't help it but put prophecy and history together the real question that comes up is what is the authority what's your authority is your authority what the bible says or does it come from some other place are you going to trust god and are you going to trust his word that what he says is true? And when he says something will happen before it happens, that it will happen just like he said. Do you trust God enough to believe that? God's word is true and it's authoritative and it will come to pass. It always has and it always will. And so when the Bible says in the future that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come in the air and rapture his church, that's absolutely true. Even though most people don't believe it, it's absolutely true. When the Bible says that the dead in Christ will be resurrected, it's absolutely true. But nobody wants to believe in the resurrection. Nobody does. Remember last week? The problem with those philosophers, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Nobody wants to believe that. The Bible says it. 
And it's true. Christ was raised, and those in Christ will be raised. When the Bible speaks about the Messiah returning to Israel and establishing his kingdom, it's true just the way the Bible says. And so we believe the Bible. We don't believe a certain theological position. We don't believe famous preachers just because they're famous. We believe the Bible because it's from God and it is the word of God. Bible truth matches history. Let me say this the other way around to make it right. History, true history, matches Bible truth. Do you believe that? Amen. Why don't you stand with me and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your word and even in passages like today where we see all this detail. And be so easy just to say, Lord, we see all this detail, we believe it and move on. But the fact that you give us all this detail and you show us all these things that from Daniel's perspective was totally future. He had no idea about the people involved. And you said these things will happen hundreds of years before they did. It shows us, it shows us who you are, and it shows us your truth. And if you can accomplish what you predicted there, then you can accomplish what you predicted that you'll do with the Jews. And if you are faithful to the nation of Israel, we know that you'll be faithful to us. And so we give you thanks for this assurance about who you are and about the truthfulness of your word that we find here in the book of Daniel. Help us from this assurance to go out and proclaim your word and your salvation to a world that is lost. Help us not to shirk back from the truth of your word, but to live it. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.